Charles Montgomery is the author of the UCSB Reads book for 2023, Happy City, Transforming Our Lives Through Urban Design. He is coming to campus this Wednesday and will be speaking in Campbell Hall. I had an opportunity to speak with him to learn a little bit more about the book prior to his visit. Hi, Charles Montgomery. Thank you so much for meeting with me. To start off our interview, can you give a brief summary of the book and tell us what originally interested you about this topic and what are the main arguments you make in the book? Mm. Well, I mean, it all started for me when I took a bike ride through the, um, the city of Bogota, the capital capital city of Colombia, with its uh, the guy who had been its mayor. And this guy was full of bluster. He had said he had uh, redesigned his city to maximize people's happiness. And, you know, he's a politician, and you, so you always got to take it with a grain of salt. Um, but I was inspired by that idea that, you know, you can design a city in ways that make us happier or less happy. So my book, Happy City, is really an exploration of that idea. What can we learn from, <clears throat> from science and psychology and neuroscience and um, experiments in urban design around the world to understand how our cities affect us and how we can build cities that really can make us happier? In your book, you critique urban sprawl and the negative impacts of long commutes, but you also make an argument about overly dense cities leading to negative psychological outcomes such as self-isolation. So can you talk about an ideal city's density level? And if you were searching for a new home, what environment would you search for? Where would you place yourself? <laughs> you know, it's, okay, it's I acknowledge it's a tough question because um, it, everything comes down to context. So um, I'm going to talk about the elements that make for a great, uh, healthy, happy neighborhood and city. And then we can imagine, you know, how that might fit into different places. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know where I live. I think I picked the place. So um, it's really important to be able to walk or roll to meet your everyday needs within, say, 10 or 15 minutes of your home. That's the most important thing. Um, because when we meet other people out on the street, in those social spaces, cafes, sidewalks, parks, um, we develop a kind of ease and trust in one another. And, and life just gets easier and better. Um, so these walkable neighborhoods with a mix of uses, enough density to support frequent public transit, for example, and to, to support lots of shops and services. These places, they just make life better. And, you know, when you live in one of those places, you get healthier because you end up walking more. So uh, what's an ideal happy city? I actually live in a neighborhood that's starting to become just like that. So I live in Vancouver, Canada. Um, couldn't afford to live downtown, um, but I, um, I, beca I became part of a co-housing group and we are 25 households. We built our own urban village, uh, but because land here is expensive, we had to go up. So it's a six-story apartment building. Um, we have a common house where we share meals a couple times a week. But we also have a neighborhood where we can walk. It's, you know, one, one and a half minutes for me to walk to groceries, two minutes to a coffee shop, six minutes to a swimming pool, 10 minutes to tennis courts. It, it's all here. So uh, that's my happy neighborhood. Kind of in touch with this idea of being able to walk everywhere, you bring up the idea of carless cities. So can you convince our listeners to support carless cities? Why do they not need a car? 
I'm going to reframe your question because I don't believe a carless city exists anywhere on the planet. But yeah. there are lots of people who are living with the freedom to not have to drive everywhere all the time. So if your listeners are um, living in car dependent um, dispersal or sprawl, they have no choice. They have to drive everywhere. And we know that can cause all kinds of harms. It's terrible for your kids because they don't get the freedom to go do things. It's terrible for parents because they end up becoming chauffeurs all day long. Um, it's terrible for the environment, obviously. Um, and it's terrible for social relationships because we, we just aren't able to connect as, as much as we'd like to do. So what I try to paint for people is a picture of a place where you get more freedom. I mean, you're Americans, right? You, you're into freedom, I'm, I'm told. So what does that mean? Uh, it means, well, I'm thinking of a community in Germany called Vauban, which has been referred to as a car-free community. It's not really. But in Vauban, um, you're not allowed to park in front of your house. So if you have a car, you have to park it at the, you know, about four minutes away at the edge of the village. Um, people who uh, take that car parking, you know, you, you have to pay for your parking spot. So the cost of housing and parking is separated. So housing is much cheaper for people who don't have cars. So they don't have to pay for other people's parking. The streets are slow. I was there hanging out with a four-year-old boy who walked to school alone without his parents, which seems shocking to me, but the parents had said that there's no danger here. The, the kid's safe. Um, when vehicles do drive through the community, there are roads, but they're slow. Uh, when you're in front of people's houses, it's, it's five kilometers an hour. What's that? Three miles an hour. So look, these places are, are sprouting up around the world. People are quite desperate to live in them. They're, they end up being more expensive than sprawl because people really, really want to live there. And if you, if you really wanted to find that place in the United States, one's being built right now. It's called Cul-de-Sac. It's in Tempe, Arizona. And um, it's a, a community of uh, thousands of people that's sprouting up um, next to a, um, a light rail station. For these cities where having a car is not super common, they usually have to be very walkable, but also have pretty good public transportation networks. And going back to what you said before, you credit Bogota in your book for having a sexy public transportation system. Can you elaborate on a few more real life examples of public transportation systems that really work well? Sure, well, I can I can tell you about the one in my own city in Vancouver. Um, it's all about convenience and freedom. So, um, and dependability. So when I leave my house in the morning, sometimes I haven't even decided how I'm, how I'm going to travel to my appointments. I might take my bike because there's uh, safe bike routes into town. I may grab a car share uh, because I'm in a big hurry. Uh, uh, but I also might take uh, the nearby public transit. So I walk three minutes to a bus stop where a bus comes every eight minutes. Um, these our system is built uh, with uh, like a lattice work of really fast and frequent bus routes, but it's connected by excellent public transit. And we've made uh, a big effort in my province in Canada uh, to ensure that um, all the land around these rapid transit stops um, is uh, is built up with shops, services, and lots of housing for people. So these things kind of go together. You you get that freedom. Uh, to move, 
Um, and you get that freedom of access to things close by by giving people a bit more freedom to do what they want with their land. I mean, right now, it's illegal to do more than build a detached house in 80% of the land in most American cities. So, you know, Americans basically have banned affordability for most of their cities and convenience. For these less walkable cities in the United States, the ones that have a lot of single family zones, they are very dependent on freeways. And in your book, you talk about the negative impact of freeway systems on the happiness of a community. Can you elaborate on that for our listeners? What are some of the psychological impacts of having a freeway going right through your backyard? Well, people who live near freeways are more exposed to noise and to air pollution, which means they're susceptible to all kinds of diseases. They die much younger than people who live far away from freeways. But I think one remarkable thing that's not spoken enough about is, you know, where did Americans build freeways? You most likely built your urban freeways through neighborhoods, uh, people of color, typically black Americans. And if you look at places like Oakland, um, the freeway creates this incredible barrier between haves and have-nots. And uh, what that does is it takes away people's access, <clears throat> the people who are blocked off by the freeway or the people who get their neighborhoods ripped apart. They have a harder time getting to advanced education. They have a harder time getting to, to accessible jobs. Basically, they're having to put up with the pollution of people who don't even live in their neighborhoods. So it's a ter terrible injustice. Luckily, the good news is that people are tearing down these urban freeways all around the world. And when they do, something kind of magical happens. In Seoul, for example, they tore down this stretch of inner city, a double-decker freeway. And they expected, you know, Carmageddon. Uh, and what happened was the cars just sort of dissipated because there was good pu public transit. And people found other ways to move. Um, but the city wasn't overwhelmed with traffic. And that freeway zone was replaced by a gorgeous urban river and park system. So, you know, the city can be built to work well for people or for cars, but it, it can't do both. Going into this idea of historically and currently marginalized communities getting the short end of the stick when it comes to urban planning, there have been a lot of calls specifically within Black communities that I've been hearing recently to build more green spaces in those communities because that's been historically neglected. Can you talk about the disparities in happily designed cities? How can urban design exacerbate or perpetuate inequalities through the psychological impacts of things like a lack of green space? Well, it cuts both ways. So I think, um, first of all, we know that uh, green infrastructure, for example, these projects um, can do wonders for uh, children's health. Well, for everybody's health in the neighborhood. It's also kind of amazing if you live near a public park, people who live near public parks report being more likely to trust their neighbors and trust strangers because they're getting more interaction with each other. Uh, but they're also feeling calmer and reporting being happier uh, throughout their lives. But there's another piece going on here, and, and it's that most urban green projects tend to go into neighborhoods that are either high, high in socioeconomic status or neighborhoods that are rapidly gentrifying. So look at the High Line in New York City, for example. Um, uh, visitors to New York City love to go to the High Line. I, I, it's just this amazing piece of 
um, elevated park that was on an old um, uh, put on an old rail line. And yet property values shot up all around the high line. Great for owners, terrible for renters. Um, something is changing, though, in the way we're considering uh, green infrastructure. Um, can I give you one happy story? Yes, please. All right. So um, in Washington, D.C., uh, some very well-meaning um, civic leaders got the idea of taking the footings from an old bridge that crossed the Anacostia River uh, between Capitol Hill and Anacostia. And, and building their own kind of high line, building a green park bridge across the river. And they thought this would be great. You know, they, um, Capitol Hill, which is you know, becoming um, middle class or wealthy, can be more connected to Anacostia, which has uh, suffered uh, from, you know, a century of under an in investment. It's, and 90% of the population is black. And these are people who have uh, not benefited from urban and the urban investment that the rest of the city benefited from. Um, so when they pitched this idea south of the river in Anacostia, thinking that the community would be um, cheering for joy, what they got was silence. And the project proponents were like, well, everyone's silent. They must really want this until someone informed them uh, uh, after the meeting is that, that we're silent because we're exhausted and we're terrified that your green bridge is actually going to be um, a conduit for gentrification, uh, money flowing across the river, and uh, and current residents are all going to get pushed out. So the happy part of the story is, is they all started working together on this. It's called the 11th Street Bridge Project. Um, and 10 years later, tens, excuse me, tens of millions of dollars have been invested in this community in ways to support uh, existing residents, support local businesses, uh, to create a community land trust to um, protect um, local people from that influx of capital. And shovels haven't even gone in the ground for this bridge yet, but the Bridge Park project helped raise the money to protect against some of the harmful effects of new green infrastructure. A lot of people in this country look at a transition to happy cities with a good amount of cynicism. I'm from the Bay Area. I'm very familiar with that highway system that you described earlier. And looking at that and thinking, how would we design Oakland to be a happier city? It seems like a really big feat to make the transition to happier cities when there's a lot of existing infrastructure that really works against that. What do we have to do? What are common themes among success stories who have made the transition from unhappy city infrastructure to happy infrastructure? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, and I think I think Oakland is a kind of a neat example. Um, just sort of moving away for a sec from the issue of housing. Um, I noticed what happened to in Oakland uh, during the pandemic, um, particularly around mobility. Now, Oakland is a city where you have, you've got the freeways coming through, but you also have these really fast wide streets and people burning through those streets on the way to somewhere else. Um, and I understand in the first weeks of the pandemic, um, Warren Logan in the mayor's office, uh, who was in charge of transportation, kind of the transportation czar in the city was like, hey, first of all, um, people can't meet so much indoors. So let's move quickly 
to create a network of slow streets where people can recreate on their local streets more safely outside. Um, then another thing happened. I think um, uh, activists from, I guess it was south, uh, is it Southeast Oakland, um, were uh, pretty choked at this fast move and said, well, you didn't actually ask us what we wanted. And what so many communities of working people, people of color were saying they wanted was like safer ways to get to crucial places like transit stops, like health centers, pharmacies. So again, the city said, okay, tell us what you need. And they moved very quickly, like within days to start building this, these nodes, these safe nodes where they would squeeze roads a little tighter just with cones and paint so that children and families could say cross the street to get to health centers and whatnot. And to me, that program demonstrated that cities can change really quickly when they want to, when something is seen as an emergency. Now, why Americans don't see their epidemic of, uh, of street deaths, you know, more than 40, something like 45,000 Americans die every year uh, by car. Why you don't see that as an emergency boggles my mind, but it's something you can act very quickly on. And again, it's something cities around the world are doing. Um, Paris, for example, you know, Along the Seine River in Paris used to be a freeway. And today, if you go there now, it's just like a beautiful promenade. And it's a place where people from around the world now come to visit and enjoy. Oh, then again, you've got Santa Barbara, State Street, pedestrianization. This is um, a, an amenity that er emerged during a time of emergency, which you're now all seeing as like, oh, geez, maybe this is actually, maybe it'd be great to have this wonderful social space forever. We can do it. You've talked a lot about small things that cities can do on an individual level. And specifically with the example of Oakland, it's great because Oakland has a lot there. You have a pharmacy, you have a hospital, you also have a lot of residential areas. But there's also a lot of cities that can't accomplish the same level of interconnectivity because they're simply smaller. So what are the things that we can do on a local level? And what are things that need to be done on a state level or even a national level in order to create better and happier infrastructure? Mm. I think the thing is, you just can't separate the way we use land from the way we get around. So the way we've designed too many suburban spaces, um, we separate living areas from shopping areas, from working areas, from studying areas, from recreational areas, and then you have to spend your day driving in between those places. And so, you know, past planners have done a terrible disservice because they've designed landscapes that essentially control our behavior. So, the challenge now is what, what can we do to be more free and get that freedom back? Um, there are several steps you can take. Number one, look at your zoning rules. Make it legal to do more in people's neighborhoods. People should be able to, and, and California, the state of California has done excellent work here, legalizing secondary suites. I think, do you call them secondary suites or granny suites down there? Um, I'm, I'm not totally sure, to be honest. They're accessory dwelling units. So a landowner can, can build a suite in their garage or off the side of their house, allowing more uh, duplexes and even quadruplexes in neighborhoods. That can help. But then those people still need to access 
the rest of their lives. We've entered this era of, you know, work from home for many people or partial work from home. So now our neighborhoods need to do more. Why can't someone turn their garage into a coffee shop? Why can't people offer, offer more services uh, in little storefronts on their street corners? This used to be the American way. This used to be everywhere. Um, we can have it again, but it, those, those uses are currently illegal. And then think of, um, think of your local big box zone or strip mall. Um, these are ideal locations for more affordable housing. Uh, and uh, once you get more affordable housing plunked down on some of those vast parking lots, suddenly those become more commercially viable and they become potentially great villages for people who insist on living far away in their cars, um, they become great villages for people to reach by car and and you know enjoy that stroll, enjoy the social side of village life. Can you point our listeners in the direction of a few cities that you think are really doing the urban design thing correctly? Either the, either they have existing infrastructure that you really support, or there's promising potential like future progress in the area of urban design where would you tell people to go live um i'm not going to tell them to go live there because then they'll make the housing too expensive for everybody who already lives there but i'll give you a few examples uh copenhagen where 40 years ago everybody drove to work and uh was angry and stuck on these city streets um by building a very very complete robust uh, network of safe bike uh, lanes combined with awesome transit. Now something like half the population uh, white uh, bikes or walks to work in the city core. Um, and something like 70% of the, well, only 30% of the population drive uh, when they're commuting in Copenhagen anymore. So it's providing more freedom for everyone. I kind of like, I have to say I'm in love with Mexico City. Um, and they've done their same work recently by looking at places where there's just too much asphalt, um, where people are just storing cars or driving quickly and reclaiming some of that space so that people can um, uh, people can use them socially. And then I'll, I'll give you one more. I, I think uh, Vienna is a great example. It's a global example of affordable housing. So something like I'm going to get this, my stats wrong here between. Uh, I think 50 and 70% of people in Vienna actually live in um, in subsidized government-owned housing. They rent. And these are high-status, beautiful homes. Um, and so this makes Vienna one of the most affordable places in the world to live. And so imagine one of the most beautiful places in the world to live with the highest quality of life is also the most affordable. And they got there because the local government actually started investing in affordable housing 80 years ago and never stopped. So we're a little bit over time and we're coming to an end, but is there anything that you would like to add? Do you maybe have any messages for UCSB students looking to make a difference in the happiness of our cities? Well, I'm, I'm assuming some students will eventually get involved in governance, in, in, in city engineering and urban planning. And you need to know that this old generation of planners and designers and decision makers, they need you. They need to hear from you. They need your expertise because you're learning things in a different way and your experiences are so different from, um, from some of the old fuddy-duddies. 
Um, but I, I also want to suggest that, you know, whether you get involved in those fields or not, um, you, you can change your neighborhood and your city. You can get involved. Um, and it's sometimes about showing up, but it's also about taking action at the local level. Um, whether you're building um, a little tiny library in the patch of grass in the front of your apartment building, or whether you're simply putting on garden parties with your neighbors, or whether you're sneaking out in the middle of the night with a can of paint, yes, and painting um, a crosswalk where there really should be one to shame the city into taking action. I think, you know, everyone can make a difference. So I encourage y'all to, to really believe that the city belongs to you and it's yours to change and love. That was Charles Montgomery on his book, Happy City, Transforming Our Lives Through Urban Design, the 2023 UCSB Reads selection. He is coming to UCSB's Campbell Hall this Wednesday for his author talk. The community is invited to attend for free. For more information and to RSVP, go to artsandlectures.ucsb.edu. For KCSB News, I'm Rosie Boltman.